Kia ora, my name is Mark Easterbrook and you're listening to Going West Audio. For your enjoyment, education and inspiration, we've opened up our archives, queued up the tapes and unearthed the best oratory, discussion and performance from 25 years of the Going West Writers' Festival. In this episode, writer Tina Makareti joins interviewer Selena Tusitala-Marsh to talk about her prize-winning novel, Where the Rekohu Bone Sings, and receives a special poem to mark the occasion. One of the interesting parts of this job is it's it's not too hard to pick out who you want to present as a as a reader or a writer on stage. The hard part is picking out who to put them on stage with. And as soon as I'd finished reading Tina's book, I thought, I know the person for this, it's Selena Marsh. So I emailed Selena and she said, Oh yeah, I read it I read it for for um, her PhD dissertation for Womanhire. And she knew the text from a couple of years earlier, so it was a wonderful coincidence that Selena is here to talk to Tina Makariti. Both of you, welcome to the stage. Thank you. Tēnā kōtū, tēnā koutou, talofalava, bolavanaka, māloelelei, kiorana, whakalofalahiatu, and mērongo, which means peace in Moriori. I thought I would introduce um, Tina by um, a small poem that I wrote, of course. You know, this is what happens when you ask a poet to interview. Um, And it's really appropriate that the theme for this festival is small islands of meaning, because of course we're discussing where the Rekohu Bone sings, Tina's novel. Rekohu, or the Chatham Islands, is a small island, with its own hokopapa, or whakapapa, or genealogy and history. And the meaning often lies in those beautiful dendroglyphs, is it? Dendroglyphs, dendroglyphs, Mm. which are the tree carvings, one of which is on the cover. Tina Makareti, writer of Moriori, Māori and Pākehā descent, lover of story, disbanded history, hokopapa, chanting intent. Chatham Isle mystery, Rako Momori, see what mythology brings. Tree-carved divinity, sacred infinity, where the rekohu bone sings. Tina, welcome to our stage. It's an absolute blessing and honour to have you. Don't tear up yet. I didn't know I was going to get a poem. (laughs) It's very moving. Oh, yeah. So, um, yeah, I think that's it. We're done. I'm flying, (laughs) so... Oh, my goodness. You know, I mean, I'm just going to plunge into the guts of the matter because um, what you've done with this story is examine a really explosive part of this country's history. And it's very flammable in ignorant hands because the Māori story or the various versions, um, myths that have circulated, have been used to, some would argue, further colonise Māori. So um, you explore this dynamic through your book, particularly through the characters of the twins. But, you know, why this story and why now first, I guess? Mm. Yeah, um, listening to you say that, I'm actually thinking, I'm crazy. What am I, why, you know, I I don't know. 
in a certain place I don't know, in a, in a different place I do know. But yeah, it does seem like a, a crazy undertaking and something I didn't take lightly and something I worried about um, quite a lot. But what led me into it was my own um, my own family story and. Um, uh, well, when my, daughter, my second daughter came into the world, I was overseas and I rang home and said, um, can, can I have a tupuna name? You know, what, what's the tupuna name that I should give this child? We all have, you know, a, a Māori name as, as well as um, usually the second name. And uh, the name I was given, I was told that, you know, given a name and, and told that that's, that's the Māori ancestor. And I'd always known that um, that we, we had the story, you know, we have we're part Māori, um, something mythological, not really real to me at all. Um, I thought it was kind of cool. Like, I remember telling kids at school, oh, we're part Māori, and, and they died out. And, and somehow the contradiction didn't occur to me at that point <laughs> as a kid. But um, so I, I thought, well, if, if I'm going to have a daughter carrying this name, what, um, what does that mean? What, how do I understand that? Um, and so... From that time onwards, I started thinking about it, and I was I was doing other things, but thought that one day I would have to find out, and and then I I got the opportunity to do that through um, well, my way of doing it was through the PhD because I need I knew I needed a lot of research time, and it would take a lot of work. Um, but yeah, why the story now? And I think in many ways I don't have. Well, at all, I don't have full claim to that story and I, I don't want to claim that that's my story. It's just one that I made up. You know, there, there will be other stories of people um, from that place or I'm not from that place. So I was coming from that perspective of someone finding out stuff about their um, heritage. Um, and I guess in a really strong way, it's about um, my own confusions about my own heritage being Māori and Pākehā and um, actually being brought, uh, actually having quite a strong kind of disconnect from the Māori side very young and then coming back to it as a teenager so that that, when I look at the story it's just as much about, um, I mean it, it, we have this wonderful history um, of Māori Ori and, and and Rekohu, and um, we don't know the real stories there, so that is an extraordinarily important that we we understand that better. But at the same time, I think our country is full of people who have a kind of mixed heritage, which is um, very puzzling in many ways, and and, and um, very interesting to me because because I have it, and it's always been a mystery. So I think those two things coming together might be the reason why I approach this and I think um, uh, exploring something I didn't really understand or I, I didn't have sure footing in, I kind of come from a place of not saying I know everything but just mm. saying how do we understand this? I, I just want to know how do we put the history together with our contemporary lives and understand that. Yeah, and it's also a really rich environment and a safe environment to be doing this as part of a, a study, like you did it as part of your creative PhD. And I guess your um, two primary vehicles for research would have been people and books. So this session is titled A Land Apart, which comes from a publication written by Michael King, and he was one of your sources mm. for Moriori mm. history. Yeah, well... Obviously, um, there haven't been a lot of publications, so um, I actually I, I didn't read A Land Apart, but I 
I had the Māori Ori of People Rediscovered. And from there, actually went to Michael King's sources. I didn't have the kind of, um, all of the sources he had, but I went back to some of the Journal of the Polynesian Society stuff that was published um, either early the 20th or, or late 19th, I can't remember right now, um, and, a, and a few other historical pieces of writing. Um, the Journal of Polynesian History. Polynesian Society. Sorry, Polynesian yeah, Society. Yeah, yeah. So there was a whole, um, there was a whole range of um, articles written by um, Alexander Shand, who had spoken to an elder um, called Hirawana Tapu, Wanu Tapu, um, who, who Michael King had, had referenced. So I went looking for that stuff. But yeah, the people, the people was, the people and the land. So um, yeah, speaking to people really shaped. I kept hearing the same story over and over, which was um, my mother didn't talk about this, my grandmother didn't talk about this, our family didn't, you know, we we didn't know about this, um, and then something happened and I found out and I went back, and you know, people reclaiming it in a very, it was very gone. So that that is part of the story of, mm. it's not part of my story. We we just thought it was some kind of cool um, ancestry that we could lay claim to. Um, but I never made that connect either. So I went back to the island and. Um, I searched for our hokopapa connection and I, I never made a kind of physical connection but that was part of the story too I found out because so many stories, so many people's connections had been lost, had been buried in, in shame and, um, and people had turned away from the history so that became an important part of the story. And those, those well for those of you who aren't familiar with the kind of basic narrative of the book. There are two central narrative lines, a historical line and a contemporary line. Mm. Do you just want to flesh that out yeah. for those? Yeah, so there, well, there's, there's kind of three. So there's the 1880s um, in which um, Mere, who is Ngāti Mutunga, and, and Iraia, who's Moriori, um, get together and uh, they that's a pretty bad thing for them to do because it's just not, they know that her father won't approve of that and Iraia's the descendant of someone who was a slave in her family, um, and then the nineteen in the nineteen eighties, um, two twins, uh, two twins. How do you say a set that? Of twins. A set of twins <laughs> are born, um, and and one has dark skin and one has light skin, um, but they have the same ancestry. So um, that immediately brings up questions: what what role does skin colour have in our ideas about ethnicity, um, and um, and then there's this other figure who kind of is ungrounded in time because he was he was killed in the invasion of Rekohu in 1835, and his only way of accessing um, the world is through uh, through people, and not necessarily his descendants. But at some point, he kind of reconnects with his descendants. Um, do you want me to? Yeah, that would be so. Good. I can read you a part from the 1880s, and um, we might have have some of the contemporary stuff later. Um, and obviously there's, there's a connection here between the, the 1880s and the, um, the contemporary people in terms of um, hokopapa as well, genealogy. So this is Mere and Iraia. They've run away from home. And they're just um, arriving in Wellington. It seemed as if a cluster of stars had fallen to earth and remained alight near the water's edge, striking long reflections in the harbour. 
It was a mirage, surely, a perplexing dream brought on by the rigours of the day. As the SS Moana steamed into the harbour, the settlement ahead seemed vast. Mary shook her head and squeezed her eyes together tightly. When she opened them, the scene was unchanged, except it had become blurred. These were not the flickering and modest flames of, flames of lamps in homes or moving along sleepy streets. They were something unreal. Could it be that the city radiated its own light? Neither of them had seen a city lit by, by gas. As they got closer, they could see the outlines of fine, large buildings and carriages passing by from time to time. Mary straightened and re-straightened the clothing she had, repacked what was left in their kitty, counted their money. Iraya, his hands firmly jammed in his pockets, stood watching the wharf get closer, forgetting to breathe, then taking in sharp breaths and willing himself to continue. Now was not the time to lose heart. But Iraya did not know what was next. Though he'd been the one to suggest they stay close to what they knew, they could have been in a foreign country after all. He had never stayed away from home before. Neither of them had seen a city or had to find accommodation in one. They had not thought past leaving Waimua. The steamer docked and they followed the other passengers as they disembarked. The people around them were intent on their luggage and destinations, and the couple became aware that they had neither. But there was so much to see, so much happening on the wharf. Several young men seemed to be employed exclusively hauling belongings and cargo. Iraya wondered, wondered if that might be something he could do. Everywhere he saw jobs that needed doing. There was a lot of construction happening along the wharf. Surely they would need labourers. Paid work. He felt a curious jolt, as if someone had reached through his skin and tugged his insides. They crossed the street. Buildings loomed over them as if watching from above. There was an illuminated clock tower and strange domes, silhouettes of statues and glowing lamps that gave everything an oddly warm hue. Mehdi was tired, subdued. Iraya was tired too, but exhaustion was tempered by the rising excitement of so many opportunities. He hadn't chosen this freedom before. He knew that. He could have, run away, he could have had it, could have run away a long time ago. Two would probably not have cared or followed him. He could have made his own way in the world. It was a Christian world they lived in now, one that pretended to know nothing of invasion and slavery in the old ways. But he hadn't left when he'd been old enough to choose. He'd found every excuse to stay. He knew nothing else. Two would beat him. He had nowhere to go. He might starve. None of it was true. He saw that now. They lived in a quieter, separate life at Waimua and Motawara but they had seen enough of the town to know what choices were open to them. So why had he stayed? He saw that too now, now too. It was only Mehdi who had kept him captive, and he didn't mind. He was glad he'd waited. This was much better, to have her beside him. They walked north along the quay. After a couple of blocks, Mehdi wondered aloud if they should turn left, for the streets seemed more well lit in that direction. She took Iraya's arm as he led her down a side street. It was not that her body was weak, but the consequences of what she had done had finally be begun to become real to her. All the fear and worry she had been keeping at bay the entire day assaulted her at once. They reached the corner where Mary read the signpost that told them they were now at the intersection of Johnston Street and Lambton Quay. On each corner were two and three-storey hotels. 
She and Araya tilted their heads to stare at the uppermost windows where lights shone behind curtains. A woman's laugh, high and sharp, filtered through an open window. Horse dung and natural gas, open drains and fresh treated wood. The city was dense with scent and sound, each one pushing against the others. People nodded in greeting or pretended not to see, called to each other in their work or to the horses that drew them from place to place, great wheels banging and rattling coaches along the rough clay roads. Kia ora. Thanks, Thanks. Sorry, I, Thanks, I left my glasses behind, so I was stumbling <laughs> over a oh, every time. What you managed to <laughs> catch, capture so beautifully amongst all the kind of m many layers of story is Araya, who is a descendant of slaves, his kind of realisation of personhood, you know, outside of the, con the small context that they've lived in. And as they go to the big city, suddenly social status means nothing. They're just two young brown people and they're able to be completely themselves without any kind of outward hierarchy imposed on them. Mm. Yeah, um, yeah. Sh shortly after this bit, I don't want to read too long, but they, they try to find a hotel and they kind of stumble through uh, what I discovered was a very vibrant city um, in a way compared to um, the Picton area anyway um, and and just immediately come up against kind of um, no you're not you're not the right people to be in this hotel so trying to find another hotel and kind of just being um, I mean just racism basically yeah, of, yeah, of it, the it, time. It's entrenched yeah. everywhere yeah. yeah but just while we're on the topic of the young lovers I've got to ask because my students in the <laughs> audience here and she's finding it really challenged to write non-cliched sex scenes. And so I told her to have a look at um, Makarite's um, novel. So I'll just read out a little bit because <laughs> it's so hard to write about what everyone's already written about and about what everyone hopefully should know about. <laughs> so this is, the, this, this is um, Mere and Irea. They've finally found a small, dirty little hotel room and then they are able to look fully at each other as um, male and female. As she was kissed, Mere kissed back so that her lips met the part of Irea that was closest to her. They chased each other softly, the wonder of skin on skin, lips on skin, eyelash and nose and tongue, until finally their lips met in the centre and opened and everything became hunger. They dipped into the centre again and again, sometimes moving apart to breathe and pause and look. They were finally somewhere they could call home, not the room, not the city, not the world around them, that, we, that, that was still no comfort, but each other. So how, how do you write intimacy without doing it in a way that's been written? Mm. It's really, really hard. Um, so... I totally understand the. Um, I, I actually, um, when I was an EMA student, immediately wanted to know how to do this, and I find it. I, I was finding it really strange that a lot of books I read had no sex scenes because I just think it's such a kind of fundamental human experience, um, and so, and I wanted to know how, how do you express that fundamental human experience and and such a significant part of people's lives and the decisions people make and so when I was a student I was also trying to figure out so so how do you do this um, and so 
I don't know that my um, answer is very helpful. I did actually Google um, how to write a sex scene. <laughs> it's not helpful. Don't 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 try. Um, well, you can if you want. I'm sure you find something funny and probably quite weird. Um, but um, uh, the most helpful thing I found online was something that said um, treat it as you would any other scene. And I thought, yeah, that's you're right. Um, but in terms of motivational why it's, it has to have a reason for existing and I think you've pinpointed Selena why it exists in the book is that you said it beautifully that um, you know they have I can't even repeat what you said they've found a place or a freedom within this world that's full of constrictions for them and, and there's this one place that is completely theirs and it's it's their time alone together um, so I did know that 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 needed to be there, that I wanted it to be there. And um, uh, like the, the violence that happens in the book, I felt I always feel like it, I shouldn't shy away from stuff like that, even if I want to. Um, so uh, listening to it now is kind of weird, um, listening to someone reading what you've written um, and reflecting on it. But, um, yeah, I... I just kept reworking it. I, I reworked it again after you saw it in the PhD. Yeah. Um, so, and that would have been, I don't know, up to a year later. I don't, I can't remember. But um, that bit there was, it, it's the same as any writing. It's um, concrete. Like, what is it that you're doing? There's noses and, you know, like eyelashes and wh what is the thing that's happening on a phys mm. kind of a tangible level? Um, but also there's something intangible, obviously, in, in sex. So how do you marry those two things together? And I think it's because you create the characters so beautifully. I mean, it's very Victorian when they're at Waimoa because it's all about just kind of glances and tones of voice and a slight brushing of skin. And so we're ready. When they, you know, when they get into the city, we're ready because they're just overcoming so many things and the future looks pretty bleak for them, like the, mm. they've got the struggling spirit, but it's like this is the one place where we just want to kind of dream a little bit, and, and you do that so well. Um, but on the topic of hard stories, there is a scene in the book that is just very, very difficult to read, and um, you describe uh, cannibalism. Mm. You describe the battle scene where a tribe come to Rekohu and decimate the people, taking slaves, and then in minute detail, the act and what it does to the spirit. And this is why the ancestral spirit, Imi, floats and becomes this connective thread holding the book together because he comes in and out of time and space through people's lives, not just through his own ancestral line, but any living being, and he's able to connect a lot of the, the the issues for us. How difficult was that? Were you scared that that was going to be um, misused? Mm. Um, what was the response to that? Actually, well, um, I think the the response has been not as bad as it might have been. Like I, I, I was completely worried about a bad response about that, but um, um, 
I think my mother had the worst response, so that's about as bad as it gets, really. But um, uh, um, what did she respond like? How did she? Oh, respond? you know, that's horrible. There's, you know, a lot of shame there, and and it's fiction. But I'm really talking about our, you know, what a lot of our ancestors went through, and I, I try to set out really strongly in the book that I think that there was a lot of trauma, there was, you know, they were responding to wars that were happening in their own land. They didn't go out there just for fun. It wasn't, I think this is what we think when we think about this history, we think, oh, well, and, you know, the line that I've most heard in my life is, look look at what the Māoris did to the Mōriores. I don't know. I mean, you know, that's the line that people pull out when they want to justify uh, things that Europeans have done in this country. And, um, you know, it wasn't... Um, oh, I'm just going to go out there and take over. They'd been, certain tribes had been pushed out of their lands by other tribes, and and the loss and the trauma, I think, would have been so devastating. And they had the impact of muskets and, um, you know, everything in their world had been completely turned around. So when they end up looking for a place to live, I thought, the heke, right, these, these are, you know, some of my Taranaki people. They come down into Wellington, um, down the coast, and there's Tarokraha there, and they're trying to fit in um, all those places. And I thought they would never have been able to rest because they would have always had to be on their guard. They didn't have a claim to any land down there. So when they see a, a peaceful island, they must have gone, whoa, um, maybe we can settle there. But already they've been fighting for decades. So they've been fighting all that time. So I think when they get to there... Um, I might be going off my track a bit, but in terms of um, what they were doing there, that that's a big trauma. So I was trying to contextualise that, but but you know I think that that's where the reaction comes in. Is like we, this is where the shame comes in too, and where we don't want to talk about this history, because um, that scene. Um, I was really worried that people would take that scene, and that would be the scene that they would. Remember, but many of much of the feedback I've had is, is people really understanding that the whole, the big picture, which is the big picture, was what I was trying to give. Um, in terms of writing that scene, I did feel like it was something. If I'm going to tell the story, I can't shy away from this thing that happened. But um, in that scene, through Immy, um, the um, the ancestral figure, um, he was in, he um, he started waking me up at night with his story to tell, the character did, um, in terms of I was researching and I thought I was just doing research and then I'd be waking up at four o'clock in the morning with this overwhelming urge to tell the story from this certain perspective. Um, and when that started happening, um, I thought, there has to be something transformative in this moment. He can't, you know, you, you can't just have this happen to him and nothing else. And so that was the vehicle for him to be able to be this kind of spirit figure that sees through other people that he was consumed and then he becomes a being that can kind of see the world through his descendants as well. So I didn't want that to be the end for him. I didn't want that to be a desecration and that was all it was. I wanted it to be something that, you know... Um, and the other thing was that there's a, there's a, a child in that um, scene... Who was completely innocent. So I wanted, I wanted the innocence of, of the other side to be shown as well. Mm. Yeah, and I think that's that's one of the striking points about it that Imi becomes a universal spirit that is 
that inhibits hu humanity, not yeah. just one particular line of descent, you know. Yeah. I, I didn't mean for that to happen, but that's one of the wonderful things about fiction, is, you know, I he... The story came to me about how he was, you know, the last part of himself that he'd seen was a bone. So his name's Bone, which is Emmy, which is Iwi, which is people and strength. So, um, you know, it's just one of those things that happens in story where the, the, mm. the, the story becomes more than you consciously thought. So, yeah, he becomes a symbolic of, the, of all the people in a way. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Well, and of course, there's that scene when, the, well, just to backtrack a little bit, I think the twins are such a clever device to explore the various debates about how we respond to difficult histories. Mm. So um, we've got, uh, so, so both the, the twins' mother is of Moriori ancestry and their father is Pākehā, and they come into, the, the boy, Biggs, comes into his Māori tanga at university, really, when he meets his mm. future partner. Mm. And, um, and Lula is still very much exploring, but do you want to describe the kinds of debates that you work through with those characters? Uh, yeah, I, d I just wanted to make sure that um, that there were different perspectives presented and I had this idea of Biggs as this kind of, um, he's just very comfortable in himself and he is right from the start, um, but Lula finds out that actually it wasn't that easy. Um, later on she finds that out, but sh and she's very uncomfortable. Um, it could have happened either way now that I think about it, but she's the light-skinned one and he's the dark-skinned one and he's kind of sporty and he finds um, a partner early in life who is, is Māori and he gets a lot of strength from learning about that, the way many of us do going to university, I think. Mm. Um, and um, Lula doesn't figure any of that out. She travels the world the way many of us do and um, and still comes back going, mm, I don't really know. Um, and she was really difficult to write because that's not that compelling. It's very common, but it's, you know... Um, a lost kind of person who who doesn't know where she's grounded, but then um, then she finds it on the island. She finds it in Rekohu, um, and and it challenges Biggs because he found his grounding in and his Maori identity. Um, she finds it in this place, and and the Maori identity that she's only just um, discovering, and so that becomes a thing where. Um, they challenge each other, I think. And um, even though I'm kind of, the story's kind of told probably more f with Lula-centred, I think um, Biggs's point of view is just as valid and just as important in that that part of the story. Yeah. 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 And I think the, the skin politics mm. that's kind of, that, that's in the book, it is very contemporary. It's still very urgent. I mean, we had the poetry slam mm. last night and people are talking about skin and pronunciation of name and not looking how you feel inside. And it's all about ident identity politics and, and yeah. you've actually put, inflected the whole book with that. Yeah, um, that was a happy accident. So you saw it before they were twins. So um, Selena saw the second to last um, version of the novel and then I went away and rewrote a third of it, um, the contemporary third of it. And at some point between 
the end of my PhD and um, and and the bit where I got to actually sit down and write it, it was sitting in my head for six months or something, and they became twins. Um, he was already always darker-skinned, and she was always lighter-skinned, but suddenly they became really polarised. Like, she was very light, he was very dark. They were twins. And I think I was just exploring that idea of they come from the same ancestry. Um, everything about them is genetically the same, except skin colour. So what does that mean? Mm. Yeah, and um, it solved a lot of problems for me actually, the, just making them twins took a lot of effort out of the story, like it just says, it says a whole lot without me having to explain, it brings up a lot of questions, mm. yeah. And it also makes, like Lula is is open to everything that the island has to offer her, you know, and um, and I've heard it's, it's said that those who live on Rekohu or, or have been there have read your passages and just thought that you captured the ambiance of the mm. island particularly well. That's always a... Um, <laughs> that was a huge goal, and if, if people think that, that's awesome, because, um, uh, yeah, it just took a lot of writing and rewriting and throwing stuff out. And <laughs> yeah, well, because they, they, they land on the island and they, they, they look at a beach and there's litter on the beach and it's quite dirty and they just kind of think, oh, you know, yeah. here we are on this beautiful island, why don't... They kind of look after it, and then we find out that that beach has it's got an awful got history. a dark, yeah. dark history. But I mean, it was ex it's an extraordinary place too. So there's this kind of if you just looked on the surface, you'd go, oh yeah. But um, there, it's kind of like in a way. I don't, I don't want to overdo the the symbolism, but the bones of the island are really there, like the history and. It's got an extraordinary, um, extraordinary feeling about it, and you know, and then there'd be there'd be beaches on one side with completely different sands and different waves, and it was I just I loved it so much. I just even though there'd been a lot of clearing of forest on that land as well, um, it very much spoke to me. So I was really um, just gratified that it worked in the end because I didn't know if I could do it justice at all and I don't know if I have but like yeah. <laughs> it seems that the Kōpinga Marae there is quite symbolic mm. of that history of the spirit of Moriori. Do you want to describe that? Yeah. Um, um, well it's well they they put in a lot of work into designing it um, so that it's a how many sides? I always get pentagonal and hexagonal mixed up. Um, the way you describe it here reminded me of the fantastic marae in uh, Bluff. Oh, I haven't been yeah. there. Raina Faitiri's people oh, have this yeah, multi-sided Yeah, marae. so it's either six or... It must be six, but... Um, and so there's just windows. So when you... Normally with a, with a marae, you have the room, and it's a long room, and everyone sleeps along the room. But in this room, it's mainly windows and you, you'd sleep around the room and there's a pole in the middle with all the names of, of the people that they knew about when they wrote to um, Governor Gray in the 1860s, I think. And so that's the centre of the room is the ancestral what was the, names. What, what, why did they write to him? What was the um, Oh, they were just... They were trying to get um, um, some recognition of their... You know, that they were tangata whenua and... Um, I don't want to go too much into the history because I might get something wrong, but... but there's about 1,500 names that yeah. was in that letter to 
Governor the Gray. Governor and Gray. I don't no, I don't think they know whether there was any response to that or what he did with the letter. Um, so for, for a number of years after they were freed from um, being slaves, they would were trying to get their status back and their land back and um, that happened until the Native Land Court, because that's the other thing that's missing from the story is the Native Land Court. Uh, a lot of Taranaki uh, Māori had already returned to Taranaki. Um, things had changed, but the Land Court awarded the island mainly to um, to uh, Māori, um, Ngāti Mutunga, um, I'm not sure if it was Ngāti Tama as well, and so 3% remained with Moriori, 3% of the island. Um, so they were, you know, quite a long history of every time they tried to get back up, they were knocked down by different um, different people, but mm. quite, a, quite a lot, it was the government that was knocking them back down. Right. There's uh, something indelible about those 1,500, some 1,500 yeah. names being well, inscribed on the central yeah. plate. So they were the, sorry, I might have got this wrong, they were the original, they were the names they could remember at that point mm. of people who had, um, and then they would mark beside them whether they died or uh, what had happened to them. Of Moriori descent. Yeah, and so when you go there now, if you think you have Moriori connections, you can try and find the name that you're connected to on the Po. So, Did yeah. you find a name? No, no. So I, I'm still trying to figure that out. I have, I have a name that I, I think is the ancestor, but it's... Um, it's not as specific as that. It's a transliteration of an English name. So well, that, that's another really interesting um, theme in the book. Is is you know when the twins' mother dies, they try and discover her yet again. Mm. You know that 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 she she she's gone, and then they wonder why didn't she say anything. Then they have to rediscover her life again through the eyes of relatives around. Mm. Yeah, so her silence is quite a quite a presence in the book, and that was that was the silence that I'd heard people talk about mm. in their own families. Mm. Yeah. Mm. 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 So, did you find um, new relatives? Um, I found some of my um, um, Picton relatives. Um, I went up to an Urupa one day, and an auntie found me and made me come for kai, and there was a tangy happening and yeah just I found a lot of those um, who who I knew but didn't have that that closer relationship with and um, have what have they thought of the book have they read the book I'm, I haven't been back there right yeah 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 <laughs> um, a sequel perhaps yeah no I, I, I will eventually but yeah, yeah. I mean there, there, there's obvious pitfalls in being now the representative Moriori voice in oh, contemporary see, no. New Zealand fiction ah, don't how say are you that. going to deal with that um, well um, how I'm dealing with that <laughs> is uh, saying no um, <laughs> no but also um, I'm I just don't think any book can do that um, and uh, how I'm dealing with that is is trying to help as many um, is, is trying to be a teacher of writing and getting more voices out there because I think what we need is is many more stories like this and and I was at probably one of the biggest things I was worried about was anyone saying that oh this represents the story of the Chatham Islands it's a story and that's all it will ever be. So. Which is the beauty of using fiction as your vehicle and um, and and remythology as a way to reimagine time and place and, and history. Yeah. 
Oh, there's just so many stories. There's, yeah, there's just so many, um, you know, myths. And of course, you see it at a, a thing, at a at a uh, event like this. So many different stories. And um, uh, one of my one of my other things that I get frustrated with is when people say that New Zealand doesn't have, you know, it's oh, it's got a short history or it doesn't have much. You know, there's so much there that we haven't that we haven't um, told. So many of the um, well, we always like the underdog story, I think, but you know, this this was just about telling the story from a different point of view than's been told before, um, and telling it in fiction so that it might grab the imagination in a in a different way than a history. The histories have been written by like Michael King and and um, the the Waitangi Tribunal and and different sources. But like, how do we just telling stories to get our find our way back? Yeah, yeah. Because for me, you really bought alive the Rako Momori or the dendroglyphs, the tree carvings on that sacred in that sacred yeah. space. But it's still such a volatile history. And um, in the back of your book, you've got an author's note, and there you tell a little story about the ongoing battle for survival for those Rako Mamori. Yeah. yeah, well, if you want to see them, you better go quickly. Um, I was really, really fortunate. 2010 I went. I went back uh, and I saw them. And I, So I'll, I'll read a little bit of, about seeing them. It's, it's from um, Lula's perspective, but it's similar to the experience I had. Um, and then... Uh, I went back a year later, and or maybe 18 months, and some of them have been taken out because they they have a disease, they're dying, and um, and some of them have been attacked. Um, so uh, very kind of, you know, a treasure, a national. I think it's a world heritage treasure. And actually, the latest news is they've um, put a rahui on it. So sorry, you can't go and see it now. They've had to close it down. It was an open space. You just went and walked in the forest. And, well, and, um, when, and when Tina says attacked, she means attacked, like a bullet put through the forehead of one of the ancestral mm. figures and a machete taken to the figure. Mm. So if you read your passage and you think of a question that you might have, you can finish up. On that note. Um, so Lula has been having this hard time on the island when she first gets there. Um, she starts to find out about her history and her heritage. And, um, but this is a little bit, she's, you know, she's been having a hard time, but now she goes for a, a drive on the island and, and gets away from the house. So I think the hard, the, the heritage and, and all of that difficult stuff is, is um, caught up with the house that she's tr they're trying to renovate. So they've inherited a house, and in a way that inheritance is, is quite difficult. Um, so this is just her going for a drive and she goes to Hapupu, uh, which is that place I just told you about that unfortunately is actually um, has a rahui for a year now. <clears throat> there was an ease in her, an ease in her belly, an ease in her throat. She had expected to find the island itself a hard place, desolate even, and for a time it had been. Looking around, it was not all pretty. There were patches of scrub, gorse, bracken that stretched across entire fields and threatened to strangle everything else. Broken down buildings and old boats and rusted ropes. It was so quiet. She still knew only a few people, but there was an ease in her, a warmth. Out there, uncontained, she was at home. 
She could walk freely for an entire day and see barely two other humans and not feel lost. Driving was good for her. The movement, the air, seeing the country, and there was enough time before evening and Biggs's fish dinner to stop at Hapupu, the groves of kopi trees that had been carved by Moriori centuries before. The only vehicle access was along a barely visible track through farmland. Crumbling skeletons of long dead trees were strewn across it, and Lula had to stop the car a couple of times to clear rotting branches and check there was room to drive between two shattered stumps. It was like entering a hospital through a graveyard. She left the vehicle in the field. The forest itself was well fenced and signposted. This part of the island was once cloaked in dense sheltering forest. What remains now is a small but priceless fragment, the sign said. Young, thin kopi trees crowded the forest entrance. Hello, little ones. Deeper in were larger kopi, their roots thick and knotted at the base, drawing the eye up to straight, broad, moss-covered trunks. And there, where the moss had been cleared, rāko momori, curved, heart-shaped faces, grinning, crouching on light feet, proud feathered topknots above. A smile began in her chest and spread through her body. This was not a place of sadness or pain. It was only joy that radiated from the ancestral carvings, be light, they said. Be happy. Laugh. And she could almost hear the laughter from their open mouths. She walked from tree to tree, looking on each for signs. Sometimes they were faint, sometimes twisted by the natural growth of the bark. One or two bore other shapes, other spirits, a butterfly, a figure she couldn't discern. She saw that despite everything that had happened to their people and their world, there was no resentment here. The figures were alive, faded in some places, sick in others, but alive. Their wide smiles reminded her of Buddhist monks in saffron robes. How wise of the ancient ones to make images of their loved ones in living wood to, to ensure they continued. Not museum pieces, not objects to be preserved, but living, breathing, growing entities. She left the track to find as many figures as she could, pleased by each new discovery. Then she sat on a fallen log. There in the dappled quiet of a rekohu day, she heard only the occasional piping of unseen birds. She looked up into the obscured sky and felt the settling of her bones. A small, bright, red admiral butterfly fluttered between branches. Thank you. Please join me in thanking Tina Makareti. This has been an archival recording from the Going West Writers' Festival. Thanks for listening.